This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Netroots Nation 2014, The David Pakman Show, Disorderly Conduct, Radio Dispatch, The Jimmy Dore Show, Activism from Best of the Left, and George Carlin. And now today, we not only ask that rare question, is our children learning, but also, how are they learning? When you look at how innovation is used in our language, it's to talk about machines, right? Apps, tech. And that's actually quite fitting because at this point, we've subverted everything that's natural and necessary to this mechanistic view of the world. When you look at how we talk about basic human needs, food, shelter, water, you know, the stuff that human beings need to keep alive, or education, an example I'm going to unpack a little more, we're fully in this mechanistic place. We used to have a metaphor for education. The young folks will think I'm crazy. That was a garden, right? So we would nurture the intellect. We would cultivate an interest. The entailments of this metaphor, what it implies, is that children are organic matter, and they're all different, and there's some known things they need in the analogy, you know, soil, water, sunlight. But there's this magical alchemy that happens below the soil that the educators are responsible for. We've moved from this garden metaphor to the language of the factory, right? So we have inputs and we have outputs and we ratchet up expectations and the kid is a product of a good school. The entailments of that metaphor are that children are like widgets. They're all uniform and why would the widgets need art? And the teachers are factory workers and they do a thing to the kids and it's all the same and then they're on a conveyor belt and they move to the next one after they've been tested and a stamp is put on their ass and they're, none are left behind. This mechanistic language is so widespread that we have now monetized children, right? We invest in the future and we invest in our kids and they're too small to fail. And we can kid ourselves all we want. But the prevailing understanding of the investment frame is financial return. That is how it is used in language. And so we are saying the reason to do a thing, the reason it's right is because it's lucrative. We have fallen so far into this paradigm of reifying the economy that we've said that the basis upon which we decide something is right or wrong is whether or not it grows or shrinks GDP. We have wandered so far from the actual reasons that we exist as humans and believe as progressives that we're the adults in the Charlie Brown cartoon. The fuck are we even saying? Because I know that when I look in my sweet, sweet baby's eyes, this is Diego and Shy. I'm getting cheap points by showing pictures of my kids. I definitely think, man, I just love that sweet ROI, cha-ching! Because that is how parents feel about our children, right? That's, that's what we feel when we have children and think about children. We think, wow, that is some money. Because children are not just giant money suckers. And in fact, even within this monetary frame, if you want to hang out there, you don't believe me? The investment language is bullshit. We are talking about minuscule sums for these social issues that do not constitute the foundation from which to expect returns. What we are talking about in adding to or more appropriately not having taken away from food stamps is not an investment, it's a fucking ketchup packet. And it is insulting to the people who desperately need this food to call it an investment. We have wandered so far into this innovative paradigm 
of loving the economy best, that we are in Plato's cave and we think we are looking outside and we are looking at shadows on the fucking wall. And we don't need to talk this way. I'm going to give you one example because my clock is ticking. Look at the place in this slide where the opposition is going away from us and where the persuadables are getting on board, where they love our message. This is a project that many smart people worked on. Do you know what's being said in that moment? I'll tell you. It's this. America is a nation of values founded on an idea that all men and women are created equal. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all people have rights, no matter what they look like or where they come from. The idea that the reason we do things is because it's more or less lucrative, that that's the basis of judgment in our society, is not even particularly innovative. We don't need to be saying that. We need to be saying, hey, I believe that all children have rights, do you? That's the conversation we want to be having, and that's the conversation that our opposition is thrilled we keep letting them avoid. If your heart isn't steady, can they get beaten tired? If your mind is confused, it will be terrified. If you're old-fashioned, you will be modernized. Everything is electrified. Everything is electrified. I'm joined today by Mark Nason, who is a professor of African-American studies and history at Fordham University, also co-founder of the Badass Teachers Association, the largest education activist group in the nation. The topic today is corporate influence on education. And Professor Nason, you know, I think if you were to say to many people, what is the effect of corporations on education? They might come up with something like, oh, is it uh, the kind of corporatization of college? Or is it Doritos and Coca-Cola in vending machines in schools? But we're really talking about something far more sinister, aren't we? Absolutely. Uh, the corporate influence is shaping what every child will learn from pre-K through, uh, through college. And it's being done largely through influencing government bodies uh, to impose curricula that teachers think are burdensome and inappropriate and sometimes abusive. And the best example of this is the Common Core Standards, which uh, are now being uh, presented as if they were a bottom-up initiative by teachers, educated and elected officials, organized through the states, when in fact, $200 million of Bill Gates' money was given to governor's bodies, to PTAs, to teachers' unions and foundations to try to push this initiative. And when we in New York State experienced for the first time test aligned to Common Core, teachers, parents, were, and, and educators were just shocked that this had been imposed on them without any discussion and also without any ability to modify them. Talk so a little bit, if you can, about the impetus for, in other words, why do big corporations want to get involved in education? What is the, what is the ultimate goal? Well, one of them is this is a huge market. It's, you know, $788 billion market 
of government expenditure in education that uh, test companies, technology and software companies all see as a tremendous market if you can standardize teaching enough so you can develop nationwide products for the market. So test companies stand to make huge profits if there is a national curriculum that is uniform across the country. Uh, so that's one motive is, and then uh, people who are trying to develop uh, a, a procedure to have the entire process digitized ha stand uh, to make a lot of money from the software. But there's another motivation, and that is that a lot of businesses feel their uh, labor force is not being properly trained by the public schools and want to make sure that there's kind of a uniform level of, uh, of training so that if somebody graduates from high school, you know, they can be employees who can, can plug right into uh, their, their companies. Do you so, see a uh, connection or do you see as two unrelated issues? What you and I have just been talking about for the last few minutes and the issue of both the rewriting of textbooks with a kind of religious impetus or through a religious lens that we're seeing catalyzed quite a bit in Texas, uh -huh. as well as the fight to teach so-called controversies around, for example, evolution. For, uh, okay. do, do you see those? Are these completely unrelated these are, issues? These are completely different initiatives. What's very interesting is that the people behind Common Core are very much opposed to those grassroots conservative initiatives. Hmm. Uh, so, in if, and, and it, that's what makes this so complicated. Initially, the opposition to the sort of top-down curricular modification was coming a lot from conservatives. And it took a while for liberals and progressives to realize, wait a minute, when big money shapes education policy, that's a subversion of democracy. Hmm. So there were many issues in education, and one of them is the attempt to try to undermine, uh, you know, uh, teaching that is going on in, car in, in science and history to present a more religious perspective. But then there is an attempt to reshape education policy from the top down in a way that really excludes teachers and parents. So we have a lot on our plate. And talk to us a little bit about once we see, or what, what do we know, I guess, is the best way to ask, about what the effects are on students who go through the education systems that are so influenced by corporation. What then is the effect when they later in life enter the workforce, for example? Well, well you know, this is a very interesting question. Um, I'm, I'm a labor historian, and I, you know, I've done a lot of research in the 1930s when the largest corporation in the country was General Motors. Now the largest corporation in the country is Walmart, mm. which starts off its associates at seven fifty an hour, even though its CEO makes sixteen thousand dollars an hour. Um, if you are looking at the kind of jobs we're creating. Uh, where seven out of ten jobs are going to be entry level, uh, you know, moderate to low wage jobs, it seems to me that what we're doing with a lot of these corporate policies, we're not encouraging critical thinking. Hmm. We're encouraging rote learning. 
We're encouraging, you know, obedience. We're encouraging, uh, you know, you're not, that you're taking out literature, for example, and putting in sort of, you know, very narrow textual analysis. Uh, you're removing a lot of studies of history. You're removing hands-on science uh, that is experimental for things which can be done on a computer. You know, it's amazing. As you're saying this, and I don't know if this is my kind of cynical mind going to a dark place, what you're saying in a way and connecting it to, to Walmart as the biggest employer is reminding me of when I read the great book Brave New World by Aldous Huxley, where there was a deliberate effort based on the knowledge that if everybody is very intellectually curious and fully equipped with critical thinking and other resources, there are many jobs that they simply would not do, they would not tolerate. Thus, there were people that were educated or raised in a particular way to tolerate those jobs. David, you are right on target. That we I actually have a former student who's now a professor at LSU. Her next book is going to be on the Walmartization of education. Hmm. What we have is an enforced standardization from the top down to reduce education to the lowest common denominator and take the creativity out of the classroom. And we're starting kids from pre-K. We're removing play. We're removing recess. All kids do is study for tests. And the tests are expensive. So what gets pushed out when budgets are strapped? Arts, music, science, school trips. You know, you're, it's almost like you're making kids adapt to a brave new world of low-paid work where they have little autonomy and authority. Hmm. In the uh, last bit of time we have here, can you give our audience some ideas as to how they can work to counteract what we're seeing? Okay, the best thing you can do is if you think testing in your schools are excessive, have your kids refuse to take the tests. There is a growing movement of test refusal or opting out around the country. And you're talking about the standardized tests, right? I'm not not just tests within class. Tests. Yes. Okay. I'm also saying if your kids have recess canceled to study for tests, tell the school that's unacceptable. Tell the schools that uh, there are too many tests. For example, in New York State, our third graders take six days of tests. <laughs> 90 minutes a day. They take more tests than you take to get into law school or medical school. Mm. I think, I, I go back to, uh, you know, the 60s. And to me, the most horrible bipartisan initiative in my lifetime before this was the Vietnam War. And the part of the way we stopped it was to resist what we thought was an unjust war. Now, the most destructive bipartisan initiative is test-based education policy. And I think we have to resist the tests. Teachers, parents, students, I'll give you a, a, a number. Before No Child Left Behind, the average public school gave six tests a year. Now they give 17. This yeah. is way out of hand. And it... The only people can stop it are parents, teachers, and older students by basically saying, we won't take the test unless you cut back. And if we're going to spend money in our schools, spend money on things that make kids love school, which Absolutely. is hard. And also, stop scripting teachers 
and constantly judging them in the basis of test scores and coming in and observing them on rubrics where you check off little things. <laughs> Trust your teachers to teach. All right. We've been speaking with Professor Mark Nason, Professor of African American Studies and History at Fordham University. Really a pleasure to have you on. Thank you Thank so you much. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about this. It's a very important subject. And I think people don't realize what's going on until they talk to parents about what's going on with their kids in school. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at bestofleft.com to shop at just one of the major companies with the insatiable profit incentive to help perpetuate the destructive paradigm of overconsumption and exploitative capital. Better yet, go ahead and click through to the Amazon site that serves your country just once and then bookmark it to use every time you shop, which should be as rarely as possible. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumerism altogether or at least consuming in a subversive way. So I want to talk about the second part of, of the series, and so the way that I think about this second part of the series is kind of the theme is we work harder than everyone else, and you talk a lot about Karen Ho again and, and the book Liquidated and how there's sort of this superhuman work hours and you're working from, you know, whatever, like 7 a.m. to like 3 a.m. in the investment banking group or things like that, and that there's this similar... Uh, view in the education reform movement where it's like, oh, these teachers are just lazy. And if they just worked hard, like some of these young upstart Teach for America folks, or if they were just better people, then maybe they would be doing better. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, in some ways, teaching is kind of the opposite of kind of, or traditional teaching is the opposite of what you see and what she describes on Wall Street, where you have um, unions, you have a lot of um, protections. Um, in theory, the workday is short. In theory, you get the summers off. And this really galls people that have <laughs> this at this other attitude. Right. And so it's const there's this constant kind of teachers are lazy and, oh, they get their summers off. And um, the other thing that really bothers the reform crowd is they're not paid for performance. So we're not finding some metric and judging them against that and then paying them based on that. And instead, they're, you know, a lot of, well, traditionally what you were paid on was the basis of education and experience. And so one of the big reforms they want to see is a move to pay for performance, which means test scores. Mm -hmm. So what happens when you make that move to test scores, right? I've seen, for example, a lot of evidence of cheating that happens, right, because people feel like they're going to be fired if they don't meet their certain test scores. So can you talk about that, what we've seen? So we've seen that. We've seen it on an individual level. We've also seen it on a systematic level where we've seen accusations leveled against whole school systems or whole schools. Um, and oftentimes when we hear there's some um, magic bullet, some school that turned it all around and then they investigate and it turns out that maybe 
maybe none of that's true, the test scores. Um, in, in D.C., the, um, there was a study that showed there was an inordinate amount of erasures that moved it from the wrong answer to the right answer, much more than you would expect to see based on what we already know. And so, yeah, I mean, this is kind of the basic principle. Anytime you kind of have really high stakes attached to mm-hmm. these numbers, um, we would expect that. But even if that doesn't happen, what you see is people just focusing on the test. And even if you don't want to do that, you really don't have a choice if you're in um, a, a school of um, you know, poor, less privileged people. This isn't a, a concern for people that are you know, in richer schools. But teachers, administrators, parents, and students really don't have a choice because the stakes are so high. Because what you can end up with is your school being shut down. You can be fired if you're a teacher. So th- there's no way around that. So in the same part two of the series, you talk about the Gates Foundation and how they poured a ton of money um, into this kind of idea, like let's break up these large public high schools where the test uh, and graduate test scores and graduation rates are low. And they actually kind of didn't get the results that they were expecting to get. So can you talk a little bit about what happened there? Yeah, so in 2000, they um, there's a a few really large education foundations, and the Gates Foundation is one. They're probably one of the least objectionable, which gives you some idea of how bad the rest (laughs) are. Um, And there's some smaller ones, too, that are still pretty massive. Um, But And so they have so much money, they really have a big influence. And so um, what happened in this case was in 2000, the Gates Foundation decided that the solution to these problematic schools was to break them up, that there should be small schools. No evidence base for this whatsoever, but they're rich enough that they get to decide that that's what it should be. Um, and so after, I think, eight years or so, they, yeah, in 2008, they came back and they announced that they hadn't really um, given them the results they wanted. And so instead, they were going to have a whole series of other things like um, standards and um, more data collection, more testing, and all these sort of things. Without acknowledging that by doing this, they caused enormous disruption by making all these changes. But then, you know, because they're, uh, because it's all based on their own wealth, they don't really have to justify that. They don't have to justify the, the mistake. And again, there have this whole series of reforms that there really is no evidence for. The, what all the research shows, what drives test scores for the most part is socioeconomic status. So mm-hmm. countries with low poverty, they have great test scores. States with less poverty have great test scores. Um, and localities with low poverty have uh, better test scores. So anything else you're doing is really swamped by that, which doesn't say that it doesn't matter, but it's unlikely to make these kind of massive changes in test scores that they're expecting. So we can really expect them to try each new thing and then give up when it inevitably doesn't work and then move on to the next one no matter how much disruption it causes in the meantime. Well, and it seems to me that this focus on test scores, and you make this point in the series, it's basically, and, and it's what you just said, right? Like, test scores are oftentimes indicative of the income levels of the community, the support that the parent, you know, the time that they can devote to helping their kids, right? If you're working three jobs, you don't have a lot of time. And so in a way, you're sort of damning these communities that are impoverished into this f- perpetual cycle of being continually underfunded because the teachers can't, you know, turn everything around and raise the test scores to the level that they would need to get the increased funding that some of these incentive structures set up. And so do you see that w- the approach that they're taking is kind of just a way to <laughs> kind of shut the door on, on these communities that need funding the most? I mean, what do you see as the inevitable result of of these kinds of, of reforms? So there's two things. I think one is we're seeing kind of this constant experimentation on the people that are the most disadvantaged, which... Um, 
if you re- if they really believe that these things were going to work, you might see them being done in the schools they send their own children to, and you're not seeing any of that. Um, the other thing you might see is you might see them focus on places like Mississippi or Alabama where um, they have really serious low test scores, um, the very impoverished states. And they don't tend to target places like that. They're targeting places like Washington, D.C. and Chicago and New York City. They're targeting places that have a large African-American or Latino population that are poor would that have strong teachers unions because in a lot of ways that's kind of the problem and i think ultimately they don't believe in public institutions they don't mm-hmm. believe in public education they want to believe that or they want to convince us that charter schools are public um which is relatively unconvincing but i i think they truly believe that um markets are the solution to everything public institutions are no good and if after they do all those things then people fail then that's the mis- um that's the fault of the teachers and the students. They're not trying hard enough. It's not just the teachers they, that they do this with. There's also the students where they want to say, if we just have high enough standards and they have grit, then we'll solve everything. And there's not really any evidence for that either. The model for, for many, many charter schools, you might have charters that, that have a very specific mission like um, educating students with very severe disabilities. And those, it, we, we can say that those kind of charters are in a different camp than the, than the ones that have the mission of um, going into low-income neighborhoods, educating a lot of um, African-American, fewer Latino, but, but, you know, students of color, fewer Latino because then you have the English language learner, you have English language learners in that population that charter schools tend to be less into teaching. But the schools that follow the model of go into these, you know, quote unquote, high need areas and, um, make the kids perform really, really well, whereas the public schools in those communities aren't performing as well and we will outperform them. That's like a certain type of model of charter school, like mm-hmm. success academies. And those are the ones that I think need the most scrutinizing because you're saying, okay, how are you doing this? Because the factors that contribute to, um, you know, how students do in school, overwhelmingly those factors, it's not, you know, how is the teacher teaching? It's what are what are all of the external factors that goes into why poor kids perform differently than rich kids? And those factors are all the common <laughs> the common element there is poverty, not lack of quality teachers. So, and the the takeaway from this Q and A is that the the way that these charters. Uh, function is that the students have to be completely submissive to right. authority. Right. And that any deviation from authority, any questioning of authority is, uh, is punished, is shamed out. And any, not even any, uh, like acting up, but getting up to go to the bathroom, getting up to sharpen your pencil, right. uh, is seen as one domino that will precipitate the next domino. And then as the, as Goodman says, uh, the theory is the next 
step, there will be bedlam. Right. So it's it's essentially broken windows theory, you know, in it, it, w- broken windows theory, you know, meaning the littlest things are need to be stopped so that bigger things don't happen in terms of crime and policing. It's that being applied to to children. And again, most notably, when we were talking about models like Success Academy being applied to children of color, which is mm-hmm. which is, I think, where it becomes even more sinister. Like what what children are we uh, subjecting to this type of treatment? Is children of color? How are we? What children are we expecting to become extremely docile, unquestioning, and subservient? Yeah, unquestioning students. And you know, the reading this this Q and A is just shocking to me because I'm like, how do this does not even square with with basic pedagogy as far as I'm concerned? Basic like meaning like the kind of best practices for teaching include like recognizing that children are all different types of learners and that like some kids like you know, our kinetic learners who, who get, who learn best by like getting up out of their chairs and like acting out a skit or like doing an experiment. Some, you know, some students are visual learners. Sometimes some there are, are, you know, can learn best by hearing. And then, you know, everyone learns differently. And like, I would be really curious to see like how these, what the kind of teacher training, what the, what the educational approach is. And not to mention, uh, you know, another pedagogical thing is like the best measure for whether a student is learning is how independent they're growing. Like whether they are growing more and more independent as you teach them. Like that, the ultimate measure of whether you've successfully taught a child something is if they could teach it to somebody else. And so never giving students any opportunities for independence, never ceding some authority to them, saying, you know, oh, well, we all know how to warm up. Why don't you teach? Why don't you run warm-ups today? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm not always the ultimate authority in class. You can be the teacher to, for now. I don't understand how you can measure whether the children are learning and, and growing when you don't give them independence. And so then I think it becomes it becomes like, well, we're teaching them something. We, yeah. we're, we might not be teaching them according to best practices, though, in terms of we're not teaching them into, to, to be independent uh, thinkers. We're not teaching them self-confidence. I mean, they talk about all these tactics that are shaming, you know, all these, like, public humiliation, basically, that they do for kids who act out. I yeah, mean, putting them on a lower bench. It's just not – it's just – I mean – I think, yeah, the two problems are that it's, I think, a really, really, really problematic way to be teaching millions of students of color in poor neighborhoods, expecting them to be the most subservient, all in the name of making them have better outcomes, better test scores, right? When, in fact, what they need is, you know, not poverty. But then also, yeah, just it, it just doesn't seem like an effective way to teach. Yeah, I mean, it's only effective if the goal is to get kids to internalize that they don't have freedom, that they don't deserve freedom, which which Goodman says the kids do because everything is presented as a totality and mm-hmm. there's no there's no real deviation from teacher to teacher. So the and, kids don't even say, man, this is bullshit, we need more right. freedom. The kids don't think they deserve freedom. Right, they internalize it and it's incredibly, it's long days it's days where there's no breaks, no mm-hmm. free time, uh, no unstructured time, and so no arts, no arts, and and essentially what you're doing is creating the perfect cog worker who will not question working long hours and not having a weekend, mm-hmm. and it's it, it's not that there's some sort of conspiracy theory that these charters are like, you know 
run to to make the perfect brainwashed citizen. It's not that. It's just that that the people who love these schools are neoliberal captains of finance because you know, not coincidentally, because they produce such docile workers. Mm -hmm. And I think that that this kind of discipline regime over the course of a generation is going to produce, I mean, it's going to produce citizens who don't, you know, who are who are trained to submit to authority, as as Goodman sort of says, is the explicit and stated uh, desired outcome. Which is the exact opposite of what education has the power to do, right? Education has the power to... To, to, to liberate, and this is the exact opposite agenda. Here at Best of the Left, we know that it's not enough just to stay informed. You need to get active if you actually want to change the world for the better. That's why we promote great activism opportunities every chance we get. Also, I can only reach so many people on my own, but with your help, we can extend that reach. The episode show notes are most likely available on the device you're using to listen right now, and if they're not, you can see them on the website. Simply click the title of any segment you want to share and then easily post it to your social networks or send it directly to friends. You joining these actions and helping amplify the show to get even more people involved is critical to our mission to change the world for the better. Get started right now in the show notes on the device you're using or visit the website from any device at bestoftheleft.com. We've talked about Texas and the problem that's going on in Texas with Texas textbooks, that they are being revised and reauthored and modified, often with conservative religious influence. And the reason that this can happen is that because Texas altogether represents such a large market for school textbooks, many times uh, publishers will uh, work with Texas because they wouldn't want to lose Texas as a client and then whatever kind of curriculum is ultimately included in the book is then offered to all of the other states. So this is the background for why Texas is so important in this, essentially a battle over what children should be taught. The Texas Freedom Network, which is an educational watchdog group, recently commissioned a group of history scholars to look at the new social studies textbook. Okay, So this is just one analysis of a new social studies textbook that is going to be used. And Kathy Miller, who's president of the group, said that publishers apparently tried their best, but that there are glaringly disturbing issues in this new social studies textbook. Here's a quote. In all fairness, it's clear that the publishers struggled with these flawed standards and still managed to do a good job in some areas. On the other hand, a number of textbook passages essentially reflect the ideological beliefs of politicians on the state board rather than sound scholarship and factual history. Here's a list of some of the problems with the new Texas Social Studies book. The new Texas Social Studies book downplays segregation as if it wasn't really that bad. The new book contains cartoons depicting outer space aliens when explaining affirmative action to imply that those who benefit from affirmative action are less American or really less human in some way. That is literally the analogy that is being made by the book. The, uh, ta- the issue of taxes is discussed as if taxes are flat out a bad thing. Never 
is the fact that taxes pay for things like Medicaid, Medicare, Social Security, roads, police. That's not mentioned in the new Social Studies textbook, just that taxes are portrayed in a negative light. The new Social Studies book suggests that democracy was inspired by the Old Testament, by Moses, and by the Ten Commandments, ignoring the secular origins, the secular history, the secular examples of democracy amongst human society. Uh, the social studies book implies that Muslims are inherently violent, but that Christians have never been. It doesn't talk at all about Christian violence. And it also suggests that scientists simply disagree about climate change and global warming, typical strategy, pretend that there is a big disagreement, a big controversy, and it also implies that it will eventually be an issue that sorts itself out. They've really done an amazing job in Texas, huh? Haven't they? I recommended, or maybe I didn't recommend, I recently watched this documentary, which is on Netflix and elsewhere online, called The Revisionaries, which is a kind of behind-the-scenes look at the discussions and controversy uh, and, and the process by which Texas textbooks are being revised. It's called The Revisionaries. I highly encourage you to check it out. It is despicable what is becoming the official curriculum for children in Texas schools. Absolutely sickening. You're always acting so mad And you're always being sad You're so sickening Right now, there's a, there's a paranoia wave sweeping across the right wing. Another one. <laughs> <laughs> and this time it's about uh, edu edumacation. As usual, they're against it. And uh, <laughs> the AP, uh, so there's the college board, which has the advanced placement testing, which means that they give uh, these advanced classes to kids. To have to, if they pass this test, they get college credit for it. They're the most advanced kids in the school. They're taking right. advanced placement tests. So the new advanced placement test is uh, focusing on critical thinking about history. Uh-oh. Boy, is that driving the right wing crazy, right? <laughs> <laughs> so they got the, they stopped the AP test in Texas, right? Because they think that the AP test is too liberal <laughs> and they don't like that it's revealing things about our history that is uncomfortable, right? Like they, there's, they, they'll say that everything in the AP test is accurate, oh but they God. just don't want us talking about them. They want us to emphasize things like patriotism. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> so they really got rid of the AP test in Texas. So there's no more advanced placement in Texas. Wow. Well, well they're never really well. Never really yeah, I mean, So there we go. their leader. Well, who's spearheading this? It's a guy named Larry Krieger. Right? Now, Larry Krieger, by his own admission, says that there's nothing false or misleading or untrue inside the AP material. Right? But he gets everybody worked up that it's anti-American. So who is Larry Krieger? Well, he owns a company named Insider Prep. What? That's right. He owns a company that is a business that creates and sells books and materials to help students prep for the AP classes and tests. Yes. Well, I mean, it doesn't anymore up until this year because his books and 
prep material helped people prep for the old test, which was based on the old study methods where memorizing is more important than critical thinking. This is okay. So his stuff isn't going to be, he's not going to make money anymore. So this guy is like, I got to figure out a way. So this is what he's doing. They're not going to use his books anymore. So that's all you need to know. You mean his product is out of date? His product is out of date. And it doesn't meet the needs of the students and it doesn't to prepare meet the them need. for this, this test. This is correct. And this is the guy who's, so now we know the rest of the story. Follow the money. Who's losing money on this? Who's making money on this? And that's the problem with these tests to begin with, because there's always somebody making money on these tests. <laughs> <laughs> ha, come on. So they're thinking about doing this in Colorado, and the kids walked out of class, the AP kids, teachers are supporting them, even the college board, right? So the college board that administers the AP test or the AP program said that if you, if you try to change this, if you don't teach the things you're supposed to, you're not going to be allowed to offer the AP test anymore. We're not going to give you credit, so you're going to be screwing over your own kids. Good for them. Right, which is good for them. So the students at the Denver Suburb School District, they, they organized a walkout in protest of the con conservative-leading school board's review of the AP American History Curriculum. The school board proposed a panel charged with changing the AP History Curriculum to involve stronger promotion of citizenship, patriotism, hmm. essentials and benefits of the free market system, oh, oh God. respect for authority, oh my God. <laughs> and respect for individual rights. Holy smoke. While whitewashing or removing materials that might encourage or condone civil disorder, social strike, or disregard of the law. So they're not saying you can't talk about slavery, but they want you to, if you talk about it, you have to say it like, look all the free housing they got, right? That's what they want you to say, things like that. Sure, if you talk about the Trail of Tears, you have to go, everybody got warm blankets. You have to say things like that. That gave them typhoid, you know, stuff like that. So that, that's, I guess that's what they're, that's really so wait, wait, not wait, wait, too wait. far away from what the, they're the, doing. But the AP exam is not going to change. They just want to make sure that the kids are completely unprepared to take it. Yeah, yes. Right. This is pretty much what... So are they suggesting to change the title of the class as well? Because they can't present that information under the title of AP History. You know, the ironic thing is... They can barely present it under the title History. <laughs> yeah. The ironic thing is that the new... They, they did change every a lot of things this year about... It used to be the AP History was mostly just memorizing dates and facts. Right. Right? Well, they've changed it now so you can think critically to draw conclusions from history and smell out bogus things that have been presented in history and learn from it, right? So that they're really kind of being more forward and they're tying it in. Yes, they do a lot of compare and contrast yeah. documents. Yes. Yeah, like the, the, the internment camps. That, that wasn't such a negative thing. Right, you right. Know? They yeah. were protecting those people. They were, <laughs> that's right. They that's were, what my dad says. <laughs> they were he felt really protected. <laughs> they were relieving them of the burden of taking care of all their money and property. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Right. See, there's two sides to every story, there is Jimmy. Two sides. Can we meet in the middle over right. this? Maybe we just turn half the Japanese. We'll meet, in the, I mean? we'll meet in the middle where the Republicans say we should be. That's right. So, guess what? Uh, Gretchen Carlson not happy about this on Fox News. Here's how she introduced. They were doing a story on this, and here's how she introduced the story. So students in the Denver suburbs protesting, calling for a change in the curriculum after the school board wanted to promote patriotism, and get this. They also wanted to promote respect for authority. Imagine that. Chris Gallagher is live with more on this. All right, what's up with these punks? 
<laughs> wow. Don't you like I'd like that wow. you refer to those kids as punks. Yeah, those had... You know, those college-bound, advanced placement student punks? <laughs> you know, when they're not out peacefully demonstrating, they're too busy to be studying for the SATs. They're probably out, you know, harassing old ladies by spray-painting calculus on the sides of buildings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so she's upset about it. She calls them punks. There's no irony in her voice? She, re she, meant, she it. meant it. She really means this, right? Yeah, yeah, that was a slur. Wow! Yeah. So here, the so here is the guy. He does the. Um, let me get the report. He does. It's pretty good. By the way, not for nothing, but do you do you really want to live in a world in which the schools take on the mantle of teaching respect for authority? No, like no. or anything of that like nature. No, no, we don't. Okay, no. Just so we're, we're gonna. She's by the way. She has a rant. I'm gonna play in a second. But let's okay. get to. Here's how they reported the story. Well, this is the fifth day in a row, by the way, Gretchen, these protests have happened. They started last Friday when the teachers staged a sick out that shut down a couple of high schools. And since then, every day you've had hundreds of high school students that have left class and joined these protests. Now, this is all over this debate because the new school board, which is a conservative-leaning board, wanted to create a new committee to review the new history curriculum called APUSH. Students and some educators accused the board of trying to whitewash U.S. history to only show America in a positive of light. Listen now to some students. Yeah, so we're not going to listen to the students. We're going to move right on. But they believe the new lessons come from a left-leaning perspective put into place by liberal historians <laughs> who don't want to teach about American exceptionalism and freedom and democracy. Ah! Instead, would rather criticize America and highlight how the views America power in a negative light. Oh, but first of all, I like how they, they say, you know, liberal historians. Little known fact that when people start reading history, they tend to start becoming liberal. <laughs> there aren't very many conservative historians. Just yeah. by the by, just like there aren't many conservative climate scientists. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So that seems to run or run counter. This school board is also upset about the First Amendment and the Fourth Amendment. Yes. They're upset about every amendment that possibly could be. So let's hear what else this guy says. Board member Julie Williams writes the following, quoting here, A push rejects the history that has been a country <laughs> for generations. It has an emphasis on race, gender, class, ethnicity, grievance, and American bashing while simultaneously omitting the most basic structural and philosophical elements considered essential to the understanding of American history. In other words, she's saying instead of teaching that the pilgrims did amazing things and talking about their accomplishments, they would teach how the pilgrims used capitalism to exploit people. We should note that this school board proposal has not yet even been voted on. The protests, though, as you saw, Gretchen, are in full swing. I like how he says that it hasn't even been voted on, but the protests are in full swing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's best to wait till after a, a, yeah. a law gets passed and implemented before you register any disapproval with it. You know, just like you're, you just like Americans have always done. You know, they never protest anything before it happens. You wait till after. Well, they'd know that if they had a respect for authority. You're damn right, Henry. Yeah. That's a good point. So here, Gretchen. This does not sit well with Gretchen, right? So here's what Gretchen Carlson has to say. She she really going to let us know. So time for my take now. The last time I checked, we were still living in the United States of America, where we have a national anthem and an American flag. Hey, by the way, why do you have to check where you're living all the time? <laughs> <laughs> Hey, by the way, I know I'm I know I'm in Los Angeles in a studio. Is this still in America? I'm checking, <laughs> just in case it comes up later when I have to act like a moron talking about AP history exams. <laughs> yeah, last time I checked, I was living in. 
let's listen to it. I just love how she says that. Now, the last time I checked, we were still living in the United States of America, where we have a national anthem and an American flag. And that flag stands for agreeing with the government and shutting the fuck up when you don't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, here, she's got more. Are they the next things to be controversial and talked about being thrown out? How could being patriotic or learning about patriotism be a negative? Okay, that's called a straw man argument. Yeah. Nobody's saying that learning about America or patriotism is a negative. Mm -hmm. That's not what people are saying. We're saying we need to have an accurate... And by the way, they're so worried about kids... They're like they're going to be indoctrinated into some liberal. These are the smartest kids in the school. If they're getting presented with BS, they're going to be able to see through it. They're the smartest kids in the school. Okay, they're the ones AP. Okay, they're smarter than you. Okay, I also and when they, and by the way, when these students take their patriotism test, they're all going to be copying off the Asian kid anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love the way there's an assumption on the part of this woman of Gretchen Carlson, but also the the right in general that people won't love this country if they have the facts about this country. Exactly. Mm. And yes. it's like, no, you can have the facts and still love this country. You just might be a little bit more leery of the blind most authority. Yeah. The most patriotic thing you could do is learn the history yeah. of the United States. Accurately. Wouldn't you think? And if those facts are horrible facts, you don't whitewash them, right? You... Uh, you understand them so you can better change and not make those mistakes again and not make those make sure those same mistakes aren't repeated. can i say something though yes. i know i'm a guest on your show no, take your time go ahead I, I want to apologize for kind of going against your your theme here but no go ahead you you you've you've been you've been taking gretchen carlson a little bit out of context here and i think you should put her in context so people understand okay she's a vile idiot and that's important <laughs> to know going into this and what does it say about our young people in this country and the teachers joining the protest that promoting patriotism is now a negative? Ironically, the new curriculum being proposed is all about promoting individual rights, like protesting. The new curriculum would also teach a free market system, like the one we already have. Okay, we don't have a free market system. Just so I, I just, we have one of the most heavily regulated market systems ever. It's very regulated, and that's why all those corporations and bankers spend billions of dollars lobbying lawmakers so they can write those free market laws to favor them. They try to rig the system so they can have an easier time of it inside their crony capitalism world, right? So there is no such thing. There's no, there is a free market, and the only people who have it are pirates, okay? <laughs> and they live in Somalia. How's that working out for your free market? Okay? I also think if you really went and looked, you could find Gretchen Carlson somewhere complaining about how this is not a free market system. I how, bet you. Yeah, I, I'll bet you a billion dollars it's out there. It would also encourage that there be no disregard for the law. Isn't that why we have laws on the books? Or have we come to the point where breaking the law is not... No, that's not why we have laws on the books, to teach people respect for the law. We have laws on the books to keep people from violating other people's rights. That's, that's why. And from criminal malfeasance. We don't make laws so you respect laws. We make laws to help orderly society. Okay. And we also change laws when they're wrong. That's exactly right. Okay, here we go. There's more. How an admirable choice. Don't get me wrong. I'm all for freedom of speech and the ability to gather and state your claim. No, you're not. I no, don't not. think so. In fact, I think you're going to contradict yourself right now. But quite frankly, if you don't like it here and you have a problem with promoting the basic freedoms that men and women have died for, protesting for the rest of us and protecting us, then get out. Oh. 
coming up on the show. Okay. So I would old, get out. I old, would gladly move to another country, but I'm afraid if I do, this one will vomit. <laughs> yes. Yes, so so Gretchen Carlson, the old love it says, or leave if you it. don't love, if you don't like him, I'm all about protesting. Well, well, then why would you say get out if you protested? But if you don't like it, get out. Hey, guess what? This country's all about <laughs> protesting, Gretchen. If you don't like that, why don't you get out of America? How because did... you don't like America, it, it... which is built by a bunch of protesters who overthrew their authoritarian government oh, yeah. to start this goddamn country in the first place. Well, I think we can all examine this issue and see how important it is when they're electing school board officials yes. that you need to participate in that and you need to really know who you're electing because these elections go on all the time mm -hmm. and there's a new school board election going on in Glendale in our local area as well and I think it's up to every everybody in Colorado they need to get their shit together and start figuring who they want on this school board mm -hmm. And, you know, it is, this is what's happening in the classroom everywhere in the United States. Yes. They're, questioning, in, they're questioning curriculum all the time. Right. And they should be questioning curriculum all the time, right? Because curriculum usually comes from the top down. You should question even this. I don't mind them questioning it. I mind the way the, the right ring is questioning it. They're afraid of accurate information. Again, that, like I said at the top of the show, they're against accurate information because it goes against the conservative narrative. Well, Ronald Reagan never raised taxes and kids won't get pregnant if you never tell them about sex. Right. So accurate information is their enemy, right? They need propaganda. And is there, what is more patriotic? What's more American than forcing your ignorance on someone else's kids? <laughs> My goal with this show is to inform, inspire, and activate listeners to push for positive change. With the support of listeners, I've been able to expand what we do here and make the show better over time. And the only way to continue doing that, to grow and improve, is with your support. I don't need a giant pile of money to run this show. I just need a steady, dependable stream of $5 and $10 monthly donations from people like you. For signing up, you'll also get access to special bonus content, including some behind-the-scenes stuff and more of my comments. If you believe in the mission of this show as much as I do, please help it continue to grow and improve by becoming a member today. Details are on the membership page at bestofleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, assessment reform and resisting standardized testing. Most of what's wrong with our country's education system can be summed up by a Time Magazine cover published yesterday with the words, The War on Teacher Tenure, atop a graphic with a gavel coming down on rotten apples, presumably representing the teachers in question. The article's subtitle explains, quote, It's really difficult to fire a bad teacher. A group of Silicon Valley investors wants to change that. As if union-busting right-to-work laws and the charter school privatization movement weren't enough, now Silicon Valley has decided to weigh in on our public education system. It's probably fine, though, right? I mean, it's not like the perpetual standardized testing process could have anything to do with the sudden interest from the technology sector. 
resistance to the monetizing of primary education and to the standardized testing specifically is growing across the country. Boycotts, demonstrations, community forums, and opt-out campaigns like the successful one last year in Seattle have spread to Austin, Portland, Chicago, Denver, and Providence with more student, parent, and teacher groups joining all the time. Testing overload in American schools released a report last week on just how much time our students take filling in bubbles on tests instead of learning. On average, across the 14 school districts surveyed, students took one to two standardized tests a month. A companion report by the Center for American Progress adds that this test preparation culture has, quote, put a premium on testing over learning. The reports were scathing enough that even President Obama, whose education secretary Arne Duncan has been decidedly right of center on tenure and testing, was forced to weigh in and support a, quote, cutback on unnecessary testing and test preparation and, quote, the smarter use of tests that measure real student learning. With the release of the reports and the White House comments, now is the perfect time to join the movement for assessment reform. The National Center for Fair and Open Testing has a comprehensive compilation of resources for anyone looking to support opting out and resisting No Child Left Behind reforms. Visit fairtest.org for fact sheets on tests, explanation of federal policies, the consequences of high-stakes testing, and better ways to evaluate students and teachers. You can also sign the American Federation of Teachers petition calling out the Time magazine cover, which doesn't even accurately depict their own journalist reporting, let alone the state of public education. Since we all know more people will see the cover than read the article, most Americans will get the wrong impression and not hear any of the concerns surrounding testing industry ties to Silicon Valley. Effective public education is an issue that concerns all of us, whether or not we are students or have children of our own. It's not an overstatement to say that the future of our country very much depends on our investing in the next generation. So visit fairtest.org and join the movement to let our teachers get back to teaching. The segment notes include all the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If education and having an informed electorate matter to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about assessment reform via social media so that others in your network can protect themselves too.
Coming out of uh, Los Angeles, California, I just finished um, your election episode, and I was moved to call after hearing that woman, your, the last caller. Hi, Jay. This is Maureen from Boston suburb. Um, uh, that you actually created that episode for. I was very moved. Today, I erased so far, and it's not even noontime. Over 200 email requests for money for the upcoming elections. It was um, very sad and angry. I'm just climbing out of the hole that I was dug partially by the 2012 elections. There are millions of people in this country who have no idea that there is a vision for reform being worked on by groups like Mayday Pack, Wolf Pack, MoveToAmend.org, and others, and they're going to keep donating to political parties because they don't know any better. But we do know about these alternatives to the status quo. We do know better. So if you feel compelled to donate your money somewhere in an effort to move us toward progressive change, then donate to groups like this who are looking to bring democracy back to 
America so that we will again have a chance to support candidates who actually represent the will of the people and not the will of their ultra-rich and corporate donors. Actually, just wanted to say I think I've uh, I've crossed the hump. Just want to thank you uh, for all that you do, and um, I think uh, I've been inspired by that caller uh, and. She's trying to put me over them. You've done a lot. I've been appreciating your episodes uh, for a while now, a few months. So I got to get online. I got to get to donating. Thanks, man. Hi, Jay. This is Gavin from Richmond. I just got done listening to the podcast on the Democrats, and I thought it was brilliant. I really, really enjoyed it. So I have two thoughts that I kind of wanted to share with you. One was uh, my experience with Martinsville, Virginia, because this is something that kind of has stick, stuck with me for a while. I hear us on the left say a lot, why do working people in so many red states vote against their interests? Um, I took a trip out there recently, and, you know, it was neoliberal policies. It was NAFTA. It was Clinton that really destroyed that town and made all the manufacturing go away. To this day, there's just empty factories and, and trucks and everything that's been abandoned for decades and rows of houses with people living on disability. And they don't forget who did that, you know, and I don't think it's the only element to it, but I've, but that, that really kind of struck me as, uh, you know, uh, makes it a little bit more more complicated for, you know, working people in a lot of these places. Uh, the second thing that I don't really, it's not really a point, it's more just something that I grapple with when I think about these things, is Ralph Nader in the 2000 election. Because obviously I'm no fan of the Democrats, but it's just, it is a fact that Al Gore would have been president if Ralph Nader had not run. The fact that he was on the ballot, if you just take the example of Florida alone, put the race within stealing distance for Bush. A few hundred thousand more votes, and that would not have been the case. So I don't, I don't know what that means for progressives, but it's something that I think a lot about. Um, and I would just be interested to know if you have anything to say on the subject or maybe even your listeners. Thank you for the podcast. I really enjoy the work you do. Keep it up. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible. Thanks to Katie Klobusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. And now I am really excited to get to complicate this issue even further for you. It's one of my favorite things to do. And, and I get to do that now. So think back to this episode, specifically segment number four, that was Radio Dispatch, talking about how a lot of these charter schools, often the ones that seem to cater to uh, minority students, often underprivileged minority students, have these disciplinary structures in place that seem like they're completely overboard. It's like, you know, never speak unless spoken to, uh, never dare get out of line or you'll be immediately suspended, those types of things. And so Radio Dispatch was talking about that as just being like generally fucked up and potentially racist and seems like it's just uh, working to create a new generation of docile worker drones for the you know the, the the big money assholes who run the companies that are so uh, supportive of the whole uh, charter school system. Well, I highly, highly recommend that you now you know whether you're particularly interested in this topic or not, it is completely worth your time to to go listen to the newest as of 
the moment I'm recording this, the newest episode of This American Life. It's uh, episode number 538 titled, Is This Working? And they are covering the educational system, but not so much the education part and more the disciplinary side of school. And they look at all different age groups and all different methods of discipline and try to figure out, is any of this working? Does any of it make sense? And they, they go into one of those schools that is those hyper disciplinary schools. And, you know, I'm not speaking for anyone, I'm not putting words in anyone's mouth, but basically their argument for their hyper disciplinary uh, strategy is not because they want the people to be mindless drones, but they're trying to save those kids' lives. Not, and I, I think they don't necessarily think these minorities are going to get themselves in trouble unless they're, you know, perfect, docile, you know, totally subservient to authority and so on. But they're thinking the system, the real world out there is completely fucked up and racist. And so, you know, sort of the reality is these kids are growing up in an area and in a, in, in a society that is going to fuck them up. It is going, you know, if they are not, um, you know, basically subservient to authority, read, you know, police, that sort of thing, then yeah, they're going to get themselves either killed or arrested. So it definitely complicates the issue. You can at least see a little bit more wiggle room of where they're coming from. It still strikes me as completely fucked up and, and wrong. But it sounds a lot like the discussion that comes up over and over again, the discussion between, you know, do we have to, like, is is it more right to put your focus on telling, you know, black people don't fuck with police so you don't get killed or put that effort into, you know, training the police to not be so biased against people of color? Uh, you know, do we tell women to have to be vigilant and not, you know, not allow themselves to be raped rather than focusing on telling people to not rape. It, it seems like that exact same dichotomy to me again. So as I said, definitely worth your time. Go check out that episode of This American Life. And now before I wrap up, one, one quick fun thing. In the previous episode, I talked about how I'd gotten a complaint about some of my speech patterns. And I don't know if it's ironic, but at least by Alanis Morissette standards of ironic, I find it ironic that I've gotten sick in the last uh, you know, couple of days. So that my voice now sounds messed up while talking about my voice being messed up. But anyways, in, in the last episode, someone complained about my speech patterns. And I said, this this will be fun. Let's make a contest out of it and see if anyone can even guess what problem this person has because I, I can't hear it. Um, so uh, Dave from Olympia, Washington called in. He, uh, you know, I, I produced a bonus episode for the members. So he went ahead and listened to that. Um, but this is what his guess would have been. Jay, this is David from Olympia, Washington. I'm calling in on your contest. It's not a contest with no prizes about your voice. And I've spoiled the contest. I've listened to the uh, members bonus show by now. But my guess would have been nasally. I think my own voice sounds a little nasally. And so I'm self-conscious about that. And maybe it's just you're another white guy. Your voice sounds a little bit like mine does to my ears when I hear recordings of my own voice. I like listened to the entire member show, like listening for a clip or any sort of anything at the end of your spoken sentences. I, I hear nothing. I, I cannot detect. I don't know what the guy's talking about. 
So enjoy. Stay awesome. And then besides Dave, I also received a couple of emails. Uh, this one from Glenn, who also actually listened to the bonus episode already. So he, he knows what the complaint was. And, but he, and he has this to say about it. He says, let me just state that as someone who served in the military as a linguist for 20 years and whose job it was to capture the intonation and inflection of people speaking foreign languages and rapidly adapt to changing tones and accents, I cannot for the life of me hear in your voice what this person is talking about. I listen to Best of the Left on mobile phone, iPod, car stereo, and PC, and your voice sounds the same through all those devices. My only guess is either he's listening to you using a piece of string and a tin can, or there may be some wiring in his brain that causes him to hear something that's not there. And then there was one, one other, and this is from Sean, and it's by far my, my favorite guess uh, so far. Uh, I don't think Sean knows what the real answer is yet, and so he guesses... Uh, it says, I've noticed you tend to waver pitch in the drawn out final syllables of phrases. Usually you start out high, but then slide to lower in the very same syllable, kind of like a really short Gregorian chant, <laughs> which I love and it makes me laugh every single time I read it. And uh, so that is not exactly the complaint that the person had, but I will say this is the hint uh, for the day that that's the closest yet. Yeah, like, Sean's, I don't think, right, uh, and it's definitely not the same word that the other person uh, used to complain, but he's not completely in the wrong ballpark. Uh, so that's the hint for the for the day, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let this go through the end of the month, because why not? Uh, the vast majority of people don't listen to podcast episodes right when they come out, so letting it go for a little while longer will give more people a chance to have heard the call to action and uh, and call in there thoughts on the matter. Uh, but that is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestofleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so tra-